Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Come to democracynow.org on November 8th to watch Democracy Now!'s three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be covering the key congressional races, which will determine the balance of power in Congress. Plus, we'll look at gubernatorial races and ballot initiatives around the country. Join us to hear the voices of activists, analysts, grassroots leaders discussing how the movements on the ground will go forward following these critical midterm elections. You can watch online at democracynow.org starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday, November 8th. From New York, this is Democracy Now!, you're out there knocking on the door and someone asks you, well, what about public safety? I want you to, to tell them this. Who do you truly believe cares about public safety? The party of guns, guns, and more guns? Or the party of public education? The party of health care? The party of mental health care? The party of social services? With the midterms one day away, we look at Pennsylvania congressional candidate Summer Lee, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. She faces two big challenges. APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's pouring millions into the race to defeat her. Plus, the name of her opponent is confusing voters, Mike Doyle. That's the same name as a district's popular current Democratic Congress member who's retiring. Then we look at some of the key initiatives on the ballot Tuesday. Five states have abortion-related ballot measures. Democracy is on the ballot this year, along with your right to choose and the right to privacy. And we look at why civil rights groups are urging advertisers to boycott Twitter after the world's richest man, Elon Musk, bought the platform. We've been working with dozens of other civil rights groups around the country, bringing them together and working with advertisers to encourage them to pause their ad spending on Twitter right now, given Elon Musk's disturbing behavior. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Political candidates and their supporters made their final pitches on the campaign trail over the weekend, this just days ahead of Tuesday's midterms. In the pivotal state of Pennsylvania, three U.S. presidents took to the stage Saturday in Philadelphia. President Biden and former President Barack Obama made a rare joint appearance to get out the vote for Democratic U.S. Senate candidate John Fetterman and gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro. Meanwhile, Trump rallied with Fetterman's opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, east of Pittsburgh. Democrats have zeroed in on threats to democracy and rising political violence. Some 300 Republican candidates across the country have denied or questioned the 2020 presidential election. This is Biden speaking Sunday while campaigning with New York Governor Kathy Hochul in Yonkers. We all know it in our bones that our democracy is at risk. Latest polls say 76 percent of the American people worry about maintaining our democracy. And we know that this is, this is a your generation's moment to defend it, to preserve it, to choose it. 
Governor Hochul's opponent, Republican Congressmember Lee Zeldin, sought to help Trump overturn his 2020 election loss. We'll have more on the midterms after headlines. Early voters have already cast nearly 40 million ballots, breaking midterm records. In Pennsylvania, the NAACP and other groups sued state election officials Friday after Pennsylvania's Supreme Court said mail-in ballots that don't have a written date on their outer envelope should not be counted. In Missouri, a judge has blocked a new law that seeks to restrict get-out-the-vote initiatives by local groups. The law would disproportionately affect Democratic and black voters. In Atlanta, Georgia, voters in Cobb County filed a lawsuit Sunday after election officials failed to send out over 1,000 requested mail ballots. The ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center are demanding an extended deadline of November 14th to count those votes. The ACLU also condemned a recent Georgia law, which shortened the period voters can request and return mail-in ballots. The U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights has addressed an open letter to Elon Musk, urging Twitter's new owner to, quote, ensure human rights are central to the management of Twitter under your leadership, unquote. The top U.N. official also condemned Musk's firing of Twitter's human rights staff and most of its ethical AI team. Bloomberg is reporting Twitter has asked some employees to return after it began mass layoffs on Friday. The firings included teams that worked on combating election misinformation days ahead of crucial midterm elections. It's believed 3,700 workers, or half the workforce, was fired. Meanwhile, journalists and voting rights advocates are warning Twitter's new subscription model for verified accounts will flood the platform with imposter accounts that could mislead the public. Twitter will start charging $8 a month to have a blue check mark added to accounts, allowing users to create Twitter handles impersonating political figures or news sources. We'll have more on developments at Twitter later in the broadcast. In Ukraine, officials are advising residents of the capital, Kyiv, to have a backup plan in case they need to leave the city due to complete loss of power and water as winter approaches. This is Kyiv's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. Our enemies are doing everything to keep the city without heat, electricity and water supply. And in general, they want us all to die. This is their task. And how well we'll hold out depends on how well we're prepared for different scenarios. Russian attacks have hit 40 percent of Ukraine's power grid, occupied city of Kherson and surrounding areas, which have been bracing for a major battle, also recently lost power. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says Russia will continue attacking critical infrastructure with Iranian-made drones. Over the weekend, Tehran confirmed it provided drones to Russia, but that the sale happened months before the start of the February invasion. The Wall Street Journal is reporting National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has been holding undisclosed talks with top Russian officials in an attempt to reduce the risk of nuclear war. Over the weekend, the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, warned for the first time against the use of nuclear weapons amidst rising tensions. During talks with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Beijing, she reportedly said the international community should, quote, jointly oppose the use or threats to use nuclear weapons, unquote. It's a rare rebuke of Russia's posture for Beijing. Meanwhile, 
The Washington Post reports the Biden administration's been privately encouraging Ukraine to appear open to negotiations with Moscow and to stop publicly rejecting peace talks. The move is not intended to lead to negotiations, but rather to avoid alienating other nations who fear a protracted war in Ukraine, the Post reported. A new United Nations report finds the past eight years are on track to be the hottest ever recorded. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres dubbed the report a chronicle of climate chaos, outlining the effects of worsening heat waves, melting ice and torrential rains. Earlier today, Guterres delivered opening remarks as the COP27 climate summit gets underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives, and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. On Sunday, COP27 president and Egyptian foreign minister Sameh Shukri said this year's talks will, for the first time, focus on how rich nations should compensate countries in the global south for the unfolding climate catastrophe. Inclusion of this agenda reflects a sense of solidarity and empathy with the suffering of the victims of climate-induced disasters. And to this end, we all owe a debt of gratitude to activists and civil society organizations who have persistently demanded a space to discuss funding for loss and damage. Ahead of the talks, Egyptian authorities arrested hundreds of activists in a broad crackdown on dissent. They also published guidelines limiting protests during COP27 to designated zones and will require 36 hours advance notice. On Sunday, Sana Saif arrived in Sharm el-Sheikh to demand Egyptian authorities release her brother, Ala Abd al-Fatah, the Egyptian-British political prisoner. Allah intensified his six-month hunger strike by foregoing water on the opening day of the climate summit. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has expressed support for Allah Abdel Fattah and vowed to raise the issue while he is at COP27. In a letter, the new British Prime Minister said securing Allah's release was, quote, a priority for the British government both as a human rights defender and as a British national, unquote. Meanwhile, cybersecurity experts are warning some 25,000 COP27 attendees face a security risk from the summit's official smartphone app. The software requires users share their location, photos, and even emails, raising fears Egypt's authoritarian government will use the data to silence critics and spy on dissent. Democracy Now! will be broadcasting live from COP27 beginning on November 14th for the second week of the COP. In Iran, demonstrators took to the streets of Tehran and poured onto college campuses over the weekend as nationwide anti-government protests entered their seventh straight week despite a violent police crackdown on dissent. Video published on social media shows protesters marching and chanting, clerics get lost. Rights groups say at least 318 protesters and 38 members of Iran's security forces have been killed during protests that erupted after the death of 22-year-old Masamini in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. Forty-nine children are among the dead.
On Sunday, a large majority of lawmakers in Iran's parliament co-signed a letter declaring the protesters enemies of God and advocating for the death penalty for some of those arrested. In Syria, at least nine people were killed and over two dozen others wounded after Syrian government forces bombed tent camps of displaced people near the northwestern city of Idlib. At least three children were reportedly among the dead. In Italy, at least 250 asylum seekers aboard humanitarian rescue ships remained stranded off the coast of Sicily after officials barred them from disembarking on Italian soil Sunday. Only select asylum seekers from those boats, including children others deemed sick or vulnerable by the Italian government, were granted entry to Italy. Meanwhile, two other rescue vessels remain at sea with hundreds of asylum seekers aboard with no port willing to grant them refuge. The two-week-old far-right government of the Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney has vowed to block foreign-run migrant rescue ships as part of a brutal crackdown on asylum seekers arriving from the Mediterranean. This is the captain of the rescue boat Humanity One, run by the German NGO SOS Humanity which has refused to depart the Sicilian coast until everyone on board disembarks. I urge for a place of safety for all the people on board. It's not only the 104 unaccompanied minors, but all the people on board need a place of safety. The, by law, they have the right to disembark in a place of safety. In Tanzania, a commercial plane crashed into Lake Victoria Sunday, killing 19 people. 26 people have been rescued. The jet belonged to the airline Precision Air. Local authorities blame the crash on bad weather. Here in the United States, Iowa authorities are looking for 18-year-old Piper Lewis, a sex trafficking survivor who escaped from the correctional center where she was serving her probation sentence. Lewis was 15 when she killed her rapist, later pleaded guilty to manslaughter. A judge sentenced her to five years probation. But the teenager could now face two decades behind bars for violating the terms of her sentence. And officials from the Centers for Disease Control say the United States is now in a flu epidemic, as recorded cases, hospitalizations and deaths nearly doubled over the past week. There have been at least 730 flu-related deaths in the U.S. Officials warn vaccination rates are decreasing, with adults having received 5 million fewer flu shots in 2022 compared to last year. Government officials say they're prepared to deploy troops, FEMA personnel and ventilators as hospitals become overwhelmed with the triple-demic of flu, RSV and COVID-19. This comes as Pfizer announced last week trials of its experimental RSV vaccine were around 80 percent effective in protecting young infants up to six months from severe illness when administered to pregnant people. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today is the final full day of campaigning before the midterm elections that will determine which party will control the House and Senate. We begin today's show looking at a number of progressives who could win congressional seats on Tuesday in Texas. The former labor organizer and Austin City Council member Greg Kassar is running in a district that stretches from San Antonio to Austin. In Illinois, Democrat Delia Ramirez is running in the newly redrawn 3rd District. She's a progressive state representative, the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants. And in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, State Representative Summer Lee 
a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, is running on the Democratic ticket to replace the retiring longtime congressman, Democrat Mike Doyle. The race has confused many voters because Lee's Republican opponent has the same name as the Democratic lawmaker who is retiring, Mike Doyle. And his latest ad doesn't say he's a Republican, but says a name you can trust. APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, has spent millions of dollars trying to defeat Summer Lee. The group's political action committee, the United Democracy Project, spent close to $3 million during the primary against Lee, has now spent over $680,000 during the general election on TV ads and mailings to attack her. Over the weekend, Summer Lee held a major rally in Pittsburgh to get out the vote. When you're out there knocking on the door and someone asks you, well, what about public safety? I want you to, to tell them this. Who do you truly believe cares about public safety? The party of guns, guns, and more guns? Or the party of public education? The party of health care? The party of mental health care? The party of social services? The party of wraparound services? The party of public libraries? The parties of youth and child services? The party that knows that if we actually care about public safety, then we need to care about the public. That means that we need to care about the people. Speakers at the Pittsburgh rally Sunday for Summerlee included Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Brothers and sisters, we have a corrupt political system which is enabling billionaires to buy elections. And that is what Summer is up against right this moment. As we speak, you got a billionaire-funded super PAC putting in over a million dollars trying to defeat Summer. And we're seeing this all over this country. When progressives come up and stand with working people, the big money interests try to defeat them. And I know, especially after this campaign, at the very top of Summer's list of to-do things, it's going to be to overturn this damn Citizens United Supreme Court decision. To talk more about Summer Lee and other progressives running on Tuesday, we're joined by Walid Shahid. He's spokesperson for Justice Democrats, which has endorsed Summer Lee. Uh, Walid is a former senior advisor for the campaigns of Jamal Bowman here in New York, as well as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, thank you so much for joining us again, Walid. So let's begin, actually, with the story of the name. It's all in a name. Uh, you have Summer Lee versus Mike Doyle, who just announced again, held a news conference to say, basically, guys, as I told you last year, I am retiring. And the man who is running on the Republican line is not me, because reports were repeatedly that when voters were asked who they're voting for, whether or not they like Summer Lee, they would say, I'm not going to abandon Mike Doyle. Can you talk about That's the right. significance? Do you think the Republicans chose him for his name? You know, there's been a lot of whispers in Pittsburgh that, you know, this uh, Mike Doyle, the Republican Mike Doyle was chosen as the Republican nominee because it would be a deliberate confusion of voters. You know, in American elections, name recognition is the name of the game. And so when you have familiarity with a certain name, that really drives voters to choose to elect that candidate. And the fact that 
nowhere on most of his literature on his campaign website on his ads doesn't mention that mike doyle the current candidate uh is a republican um it seems that they're deliberately trying to mislead voters to think that he is the former or the retiring congressman the democrat mike doyle and we've also heard from voters on the ground that um some of them you know, our regret that they voted for the Republican Mike Doyle when they thought they were voting for the Democrat in some of the early voting. And so we are trying to do whatever we can at Justice Democrats to um, get and with Summer Lee's campaign to get out the information and the right information that this is not, this is a Republican who wants to cut your Social Security, uh, to attack a woman's right to choose and do absolutely nothing about cost of living and inflation costs. I mean, it is painful, but Mike Doyle's using the same name recognition strategy employed by Eddie Murphy's character, a con artist, to get yes. elected to Congress from in the 1992 film, The Distinguished Gentleman. Yes. But um, let's talk about uh, more about what Summer Lee represents, why Bernie Sanders was in Pittsburgh uh, to rally with her yesterday, and also the significance of APAC, the role that it's playing. While APAC has the word PAC in it. In fact, for years, it hasn't been uh, a PAC in the sense of uh, contributing in this way, a super PAC. But now it's changed its strategy. And talk about the significance of this. Yeah, I think that APAC has determined that they are losing ground in, um, with the Democratic Party, with a younger generation of Democrats who want to be more even-handed when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict than um, the politicians at APEC has usually uh, been around. And so APEC has decided this year, after seeing the election of more justice Democrats and members of the squad to office, that they were going to get involved in Democratic primaries and also uh, back some Republicans. So they have endorsed uh, over 100 Republicans who voted to overturn the election of Joe Biden and then got involved in a significant number of Democratic primaries this year in order to defeat justice Democrats and other progressives. Um, and so in Summer Lee's race, they've spent between the primary and the general millions of dollars to defeat her and elect um, candidates who voters are pretty unfamiliar with in Pittsburgh. And I think, you know, observers and analysts have said that it really tracks the kind of way that groups like the NRA um, went from a bipartisan group uh, to a pretty extreme right wing group over time once they started to lose ground with uh, Democrats and especially a younger generation of Democrats. And I think APAC is heading in that trajectory as well, where they are n no longer a bipartisan organization, but mostly a right wing organization that is um, increasingly going to be out of touch with, with Democratic Party values and Democratic Party politicians. And so we are seeing them make this major effort to recover um, extreme anti-Palestinian sentiments um, within the Democratic Party. But I, I do think they're losing a generational battle here. Speaking of the Democratic establishment, in these last days, you have everyone from First Lady um, Jill Biden to the Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Josh Shapiro coming out for Summer Lee and the significance of this and the impact she can have on the party. Yeah, I think Summer Lee, you know, she represents the Occupy generation, the Black Lives Matter generation, the Dreamer generation, and like as a millennial progressive black woman, she is going to take those social movements into office and be part of a big tent Democratic Party coalition that includes people who might disagree with her on some things. But what APAC has done is put people like 
uh, Fetterman and Shapiro and um, even Barack Obama in a place where they have to decide to either back a Democrat who's running against a Republican or back an APAC uh, endorsed candidate. And I think as as APAC continues to make those uh, make those polarized choices for, you know, members of the Democratic Party who are maybe more centrist or from the establishment, they're going to increasingly lose ground by presenting a uh, a stark choice like that. And so, you know, the re- Justice Democrats recruited Summer uh, a year ago to run for this seat. Um, people in Pittsburgh know her. Uh, she got involved in politics and took on the local Democratic Party establishment and Republicans. Uh, she flipped flipped a Trump, uh, a seat that Trump won. And, uh, um, that was the reason we backed her over a year ago to, to run for the seat because she's. Let yeah, me go so, to and she, uh, yeah, go ahead, another go ahead. comment of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who was stumping for her a while ago as well. Now, the other thing that would be funny if it weren't so pathetic <laughs> is that these ads paid for by APAC are attacking Summer because he's not a loyal enough Democrat. Well, what you should know is that this organization is funding over 100 Republican candidates or endorsing. So here you have a super PAC saying she's not a loyal Democrat. Well, they're endorsing a hundred, over a hundred Republicans, including many who even refuse to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election. So that's Bernie Sanders. Well, I want to expand the discussion to other justice Democrat-supported candidates like Greg Kassar in Austin, um, as well as Maxwell Frost. Uh, uh, can you talk about them? Yeah, I think these are candidates who um, represent the future of the Democratic Party. And, you know, as as this generation comes into political age, they will elect more candidates who think and look like them. And so I think the future of the Democratic Party looks a lot more like Greg Kassar and Summer Lee and um, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez than Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And so, um, you know, those candidates who you just mentioned had very competitive primaries where they beat back uh, the special interest groups and super PACs. And I think they'll expand the ranks of the progressive caucus in Washington and also expand the ranks of the squad in order to hold the Democratic Party accountable to voters and not corporate donors and, and deliver results for working class communities. There's an interesting in these times piece, don't look now, but progressives are about to expand their ranks in Congress. Do you see this happening? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in 2018, when Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won their primaries, um, we saw that they were able to use their new platforms to advocate for things like canceling student debt and the Green New Deal. And um, when these new members enter Congress, I think that um, we'll continue to see these uh, progressives expand, expand the horizon on issues that working class communities care about and bring that to the Democratic Party establishment and leadership in a way that will have a really dramatic effect in the same way that um, the Green New Deal, parts of it made it into the Inflation Reduction Act, um, in the way that Ayanna Presley's advocacy and the squad's advocacy for canceling education debt, um, some of that made it into Biden's executive order, uh, in which he canceled ten to $20,000 of student debt. I think 
Greg Kassar and Summer Lee, um, you know, if they if they win, which I hope they do, uh, that they will really bring these ideas from from communities and from movements into into the party. Overall, um, do you think that Democrats have succeeded or failed? I guess we will know much more tomorrow or the coming days in their message. Uh, if you were in charge, how would you have crafted it? What do you think is most important for people to understand in this country and the choices they're making? Well, first of all, I really think it's important for people to volunteer and vote and uh, donate for Democrats heading into the election day tomorrow. Um, but I also want to set reasonable expectations where I do not think the Democratic Party leadership and the campaigns, um, the campaign apparatus in Washington has effectively waged a message saying that Democrats are the party of the working class and Republicans are not. Um, the number one concern for voters is inflation and the cost of living. And I think Democrats were really caught flat-footed in uh, in a way that they only started really hammering or talking about the issue two or three weeks ago. Um, and up until that point, a lot of Democrats were kind of saying, you know, it's a it's a global phenomenon. There's nothing we can do about it, which I think does not land very well. I would have liked to see the Democratic Party really center a message that connected uh, the fight for democracy to uh, inflation and pocketbook issues, um, something like uh, the reason Republicans want to weaken and assault our democracy is that because they want to hand over power and wealth to their big corporate donors and big pharma and uh, big oil so that they can continue to jack up prices as as high as they want. And uh, all this stuff that we hear during right before the election about how uh, there are caravans coming across the border, their uh, teachers are brainwashing kids into being LGBTQ, that Black Lives Matter is running the country. All of this is a distraction to scare voters, turn Americans against each other so that we don't we are distracted and we don't see Republicans picking our pockets and, and giving more uh, power to their corporate donors who just want to jack up prices. I think um, it was unfortunate that Joe Biden didn't make that case in his big democracy speech, which I mostly agreed with. But I think, you know, democracy doesn't doesn't uh, put food on the table necessarily or voters don't understand how it does. And so I think Democrats need to really paint the picture of if we have a weakened democracy, Republican, there's our, our number one tool to hold corporations accountable, which is our government, um, it's, it's severely weakened. And, and Democrats want to use the power of government to lower prices and, and give more power to working class people. Willie Shahid, want to thank you for being with a spokesperson for Justice Democrats. Next up, it's not only people that voters are voting for. Um, there are many key initiatives on the ballot Tuesday. Five states have abortion-related ballot measures, for example. There's also ballot measures on how we vote, on gun control, on marijuana. Stay with us. Saw you dancing in the fire and Before your breath and barely audible It's more let it out than let it go
Dancing and Fire by Lowe. Drummer and vocalist Mimi Parker passed away this weekend at the age of 55 from ovarian cancer. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Tune in Tuesday, November 8th, for our three-hour election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. Visit democracynow.org for details and to watch. Voters in five states will be deciding abortion-related ballot initiatives Tuesday. In Kentucky, voters are being asked to amend the state's constitution to declare that there is no constitutional right to abortion in the state. Reproductive rights activists are urging voters to vote no on Amendment 2. Meanwhile, in Michigan, voters will decide on a proposed amendment to add the right to reproductive freedom to the state's constitution. Voters in Vermont and California will also be asked to enshrine abortion rights in their state constitutions. To talk more about these ballot initiatives and more. We're joined by Chris Melody Fields Figueredo. She is the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center in Washington, D.C. Chris, thanks for joining us. Let's start with abortion, then we'll move on to voting rights, um, gun control, etc. What's happening with abortion and where are these ballot initiatives um, uh, being voted on? Well, thank you so much for having me uh, on the show, Amy. Yes, abortion is absolutely on the ballot. Uh, you already mentioned Michigan Reproductive Freedom for All, Proposal 3, would enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution. But it also looks at pre, pre and postnatal care, the right to contraceptives. We also have Vermont that is affirmatively protecting and guaranteeing the right to an abortion in its state constitution, and California as well. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, in Kentucky, there's a proposal similar to what we saw in Kansas that would ban uh, abortion. And then in, uh, in Montana, we have a, a, a proposal that would further criminalize and stigmatize uh, abortion as well. So abortion is on the ballot. And I think one of the really important things to remember going into to, tomorrow is what can't happen in Kansas, right? We can't make assumptions just because a state is more traditionally conservative, right? Kansas really bucked that theory, right, that not only did that ballot measure overwhelmingly reject an abortion ban, it really transcended party lines, and it was a higher vote getter than the Democratic and guberna uh, Republican gubernatorial candidates. Um, can you talk about the recreational marijuana um, ballots around the country, the ballot initiatives? Well, for years, we've been seeing through the ballot initiative process, uh, first with the, the decriminalizing or making uh, medical um, uh, marijuana illegal. And now we've seen a, a number of states in this in this election. We have Arkansas, Maryland, the Dakotas, both Dakotas uh, in Missouri that are looking at recreational uh, marijuana. More than half the country now through the initiative process has for, uh, approved some form of either medical or recreational marijuana. Uh, and that's before voters in, in five states um, on Tuesday. What about ranked choice voting and other voting-related yeah, so ballot honestly, initiatives? Honestly, one of the biggest— yeah, one of the biggest trends that we are seeing um, this year is democracy itself. Um, on the ballot. States like uh, uh, Nevada are looking at ra ranked choice uh, voting. Several municipalities, cities across the country are looking at uh, ranked choice uh, voting. Michigan, again, is looking at uh, promote the vote, which would uh, allow for nine days of early voting, ensure that military and overseas voters um, have uh, that ballots are counted, have guaranteeing audits. And Connecticut is also looking at uh, at um, early voting uh, 
as well. And then we also have the let rest me, of my, Let me yeah. just ask something on ranked choice voting, since I think a number of people do not understand what it is. For example, <laughs> it's one of the reasons, I think, that Sarah Palin lost in Alaska, because Alaska has ranked choice voting. Explain how it works. Yeah. So ranked choice voting is, um, you know, goes away from what we traditionally know, right? 50 plus 1 percent of the vote. You vote for one person and that's it. With ranked choice voting, voters have more choices, right? So you literally will rank your top candidate, your second candidate, third candidate and so on. After those those votes are counted, then it looks at the second um, candidate, right, of who got the most votes. So it's a system that looks a lot more about the majority of the people and who is popular for them, um, and, and, and that person will win the election. And let me ask you about slavery on the ballot in five states. Explain, Chris. Yeah. Well, it's 2022, and yes— Slavery is still in state constitutions and the U.S. Constitution, with the exception of slavery as a form of punishment. That is on the ballot in Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, Oregon, and Vermont. And why this issue is so important is this exception, if everyone remembers Ava DuVernay's uh, amazing documentary on 13th, right? It has led to mass incarceration of black and brown communities. It's over. It's led to overcriminalization of these communities. And it has also had a huge impact on the, 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 the prison uh, labor population uh, and whether, you know, folks who are working um, in, in prison, whether they have, uh, they have the ability to get paid. Um, and finally, uh, other examples that you think are key that transcend party lines across this country. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest issues for now since 2016 that has been really popular is raising the minimum wage. That has transcended party lines. It's on the ballot in Nevada, raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour, and Nevada raising it to $12 per hour. In uh, D.C., where I live, we have the opportunity again um, to remove the uh, sub-minimum wage for tip workers, right? Um, other issues like um, in-state tuition for undocumented students is on the ballot in Arizona. Gun safety is on the ballot in uh, Oregon. So many of these issues that we know in our communities are incredibly important are on the ballot this year, and they often, they transcend party lines, right? It, it, it's, it's something that we've been seeing for the last several years and why we believe that now there's a direct attack on direct democracy itself to limit the will of the people and our ability to bring these issues before our communities and vote for them. Chris Melody Fields, Figueiredo, we want to thank you for being with us, Executive Director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. And again, tomorrow night on Democracy Now! We'll be looking at how these ballots have fared um, all over the country in our election night special starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can check out all the information at democracynow.org. Next up, we look at why civil rights groups are urging advertisers to boycott Twitter after the world's richest man, Elon Musk, bought Twitter. And then on Friday, fired half the staff, close to 4,000 people. Stay with us. In the name of world peace. 
in the name of world traffic. America, the secret police. America wants fuel to get it if these puppets. So what's the million dead if it's keeping out the Russians? Who will trade by the CIA when they can tax money and fuck brag? The police are built by the labor camps when they think they're building school. Cowboy Ronnie comes to town Forks out his tongue at human rights Sit down, enjoy our ethnic meal Dine on some charbroiled men Try a middle on Fall like a mirror at the damn earthquake And make big business happy In a time Anywhere That you're just a Lead for Me by the Dead Kennedys, longtime drummer D.H. Belegro passed away at the end of October after a fall. He was 63 years old. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Alarms growing over how the world's richest person, Elon Musk, is changing Twitter after he spent $44 billion to buy the influential social media platform. On Friday, Musk fired nearly half Twitter's workforce in a mass layoff that gutted teams dedicated to combating election misinformation just days before Tuesday's midterm election. In fact, he fired something like 3,700 workers. Those let go included Twitter's civil integrity specialist Kevin Sullivan, who led editorial planning for the 2022 midterms and tweeted, quote, he couldn't have waited till Wednesday, hashtag election 2022. Hundreds of fired Twitter employees on special visas could be deported, like on H-1Bs. Others who say Twitter failed to give them adequate notice have filed a class action lawsuit. The U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights issued an open letter to Musk Saturday urging him to, quote, ensure human rights are central to the management of Twitter under your leadership, unquote. Meanwhile, after announcing Saturday it would start charging $8 a month for users to have a verification checkmark on their profiles, Twitter said it would move the launch to November 9th after the election. The move came after concerns the new subscription model for verified accounts would allow users to create Twitter handles impersonating political figures or news sources. In fact, some people actually impersonated Musk over the weekend to prove their point. Elon Musk met last week with over half a dozen civil rights groups amidst concerns he'll let misinformation and hate speech go unchecked. Media Matters, Free Press, dozens more groups urged Twitter's top advertisers to boycott the platform if proper safety standards are not imposed. In response, General Motors, Volkswagen, Pfizer and General Mills have all paused advertising. For more, we're joined by people with two of the groups. Nora Benavides is senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press and Free Press Action Fund, lead author of the new report, Empty Promises, Inside Big Tech's Weak Effort to Fight Hate and Lies in 2022. She's joining us from the highly contested state of Georgia, from Atlanta. Also with us, Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change. Rashad, let's begin with you. You met with uh, Elon Musk. I assume this was a um, virtual meeting. Uh, can you talk about who was there and what you demanded and what he promised? 
So along with um, other leaders from um, the Stop Hate for Profit Coalition, the coalition that led the $7 billion boycott of Facebook in 2020, um, focused once again on the issues of disinformation and policy um, at the Facebook platform, um, we, um, we uh, met with him. And so it included um, uh, folks like Derek Johnson of the NAACP, Nora's colleague, Jessica Gonzalez, the head of Free Press, um, leaders um, from the um, um, Asian American Foundation, um, uh, LULAC, uh, ADL, and so um, a mix of organizations um, and leaders. And so we met with Elon Musk. We came in with very with three very focused um, three very focused asks that were connected to this upcoming election. One was to not deplatform um, any of the folks that had been, um, uh, not to replatform any of the folks that had been deplatformed, um, and not to replatform them, is particularly before the election and after the election, to have a really clear and transparent policy um, around how they were going to do it, to keep in place the election integrity units um, and the election integrity uh, infrastructure uh, through the election and through certification. And to be more transparent and clear about this um, content moderation council he's been talking about and to be transparent both about the policies of it and its its level of power and who would serve on it. And he agreed to each one of those demands on the call, actually, surprisingly, basically said he agreed with everything that we said. Um, We told uh, Mr. Musk that he had to actually say this publicly if we were going to be able to say anything about this meeting um, in a way that really spoke to the fact that he made these agreements. About 1.30 in the morning the next day, um, he tweeted out, tagging the folks who were in the meeting, um, including myself, um, in a tweet, um, agreeing to these uh, demands. And it wasn't 24 hours later, Amy, that he began to, uh, we began to hear about the firing. We began to hear about other policy changes. There's no way you can keep in place election integrity if you fire and let go the very people who are managing the election integrity work. Um, The sort of changes in policy, which are deeply abrupt, which speak to, I think, the larger challenges we have with companies that are self-regulated, which means that they are unregulated, and all of the ways in which Mr. Musk has sort of um, engaged and behaved speaks to sort of a person who maybe watched a Broadway show or has a favorite um, team, a sports team, and has decided that if they were in charge, if they owned that show or they owned that um, team, this is how they would change things. This is who they would put in a particular role or put in a particular position. And that's what we're dealing with right now. It's someone who um, does not have the sort of knowledge or expertise to make these decisions. And while that happens with a lot of companies, we are marching towards an election with a huge communications platform that has a deep role in how information is shared and moved. And it will have deep consequences, um, any of these changes that we're hearing, but particularly all the people that have been let go that were responsible for some of the um, um, issues that face this platform. The thing I will say is that Twitter wasn't good before. Twitter wasn't um, doing everything it needs to do before. Cutting almost half the staff um, makes everything um, even more challenging moving forward. Now, of course, we hear um, that he is asking some of the people he fired to come back.
Um, Nora Benavides, can you weigh in on um, this issue of the firings? Now, staff have fired a class action suit saying large corporations like this, it's illegal for them to do that kind of mass firing without any kind of warning. Also, the fact that in one of his first acts as owner of Twitter, uh, he tweeted out conspiracy theater uh, uh, theories um, attacking Paul Pelosi, who had been hammer-attacked in his home and was in intensive care, um, citing a website that had um, promoted that Hillary Clinton died in the 9-11 attacks and she had a body double running for president in 2016. Um, Musk posted the article in response to a tweet by Hillary Clinton. Then he deleted it. Um, the significance of all of this and what control uh, does civil society have over a private corporation like this? Uh, you know, I think we have to look at the very long track record that Musk has as an erratic CEO. He has taken extreme actions when he dislikes what people say, whether that is on Tesla phone calls, when he rallies his base on Twitter to respond to critics. He has this long trail of ways that he is unable to actually be present and make thoughtful decisions as a leader. The newest actions in wanting and then not wanting and coming back and trying to buy Twitter all indicate that he is at best erratic. And what we've seen over the last week since he actually took Twitter private has been very disturbing. I would absolutely agree with Rashad that, you know, Twitter was not good before. Twitter was a toxic environment even before Musk. That's part of what we look at in our empty promises report, trying to really identify how is Twitter, how are other major platforms performing ahead of the midterms. And what we found was that Twitter is in the bottom half of major platforms in protecting users. This is the most basic protections Twitter has already failed to provide users. Since Musk came on, he has his first move was to let go of some of the most senior executives, the head of safety, other CEO. He has taken actions then himself, as you say, to post and I think be a super spreader of conspiracy theory. When the assassination attempt on Nancy Pelosi occurred, he was so fast to goad his followers and others on the platform with citations to misleading information. He's not an everyday person. He has a massive following. And so to see someone like that with such um, notability and many people who feel he has credibility be a super spreader of misinformation and conspiracy is deeply troubling. Then we saw him lay off almost 50 percent of his staff last week, and he did so with no fanfare, um, quite a bit of um, lackadaisical moving forward to the new era of Twitter that he wanted to usher in. And in letting these teams go, I just want to be really clear, who are the people that he has let go? He has let go teams that are part of the human rights people ethical AI, accessibility. That means the people that are helping to make disability users more friendly on the platform. He has let go of communications teams, integrity, safety. I mean, the teams just keep going. And so they've been completely gutted. At this point, they are flailing, and we are one day from the midterms. I don't understand how someone who is the new CEO can, in one breath, say that he is committed to election integrity, committed, as Rashad said, all of the things that he promised when we, we met with Musk, and then turn around and take all of these actions. And so we've really thought long and hard, how do we 
somehow catalyze accountability? How do we take some form of action to change things? And so what we've done across dozens of civil rights organizations is come together. Um, we're now at over 60 civil rights organizations that have come together with grassroots and corporate support. We launched Stop Toxic Twitter. That's a campaign where we are urging advertisers to halt their spending on Twitter. When we think about this, it's really with the impetus knowing that we need a moral imperative here, where hopefully these advertisers begin to see that their brands are damaged when they occur and are seen next to troubling hate, toxic content, misleading information. And what we've seen actually now is a, a real groundswell of advertisers that are, in fact, pulling their ad spending from Twitter. Whether it's General Mills, General Motors, Pfizer, Audi, L'Oreal, there are many others now that have followed suit. And there's sort of a domino effect here, where not only we have our corporate pressure, but there is that grassroots swell of support to say, this is a place that, while toxic before, has become only more toxic since Musk took over, and something has to change. On Saturday, uh, oh, let me say one thing. <clears throat> you have these um, H-1B uh, workers, hundreds of them, who now fear deportation because they've lost their jobs. Another, on Saturday, former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey apologized for the layoffs in a series of tweets. He wrote, quote, I own the responsibility for why everyone's in this situation. I grew the company's size too quickly. I apologize for that. Several days after the 2020 presidential elections, Dorsey testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee about his view on the responsibility to its users. You're required you know. um, to help increase the health of the public conversation while at the same time ensuring that as many people as possible can participate. Uh, and in order to do so, we need to make policies so that people feel safe and they feel free to express themselves, um, to minimize threats of abuse, of harassment, of misleading information, of organized campaigns to artificially amplify or influence a particular conversation. And that policy creation, that enforcement, is challenging, but also it is more or less opaque to the public. And that's where I think we have a gap. We have transparency around our policies. We do not have transparency around how we operate content moderation, the rationale behind it, the reasoning. There's a bigger question here, Nora Benavides, and that is, should these corporations be regulating themselves? I mean, this is the current town square for everyone. These companies are so large and, frankly, so unchecked in the power that they bring. One of the reasons that we've been trying to gather civil and human rights and other civil society groups together is to demand better of these companies. Left to themselves, we have seen that they simply don't care. There is a very long track record of inaction and sometimes even a refusal to acknowledge the role these companies play in fomenting violence in the real world. We went to the very brink on January 6th last year. Our democracy barely held on. And 
as we've already spoken about with the assassination attempt on Nancy Pelosi, we know that the perpetrator of that also was incited and inspired by rhetoric online. There is a very real and porous relationship between the online world and this offline real world. And yet these companies over and over again will turn their back, whether that is in testimony before Congress, whether it is in their own very bland statements about what they are doing with the elections this year. They often act as if they are doing enough. And in doing enough, they are eager to protect democracy, to protect users. And what we have found is that it's quite the opposite. These companies are failing to do even the most basic things for people. They are failing to make sure that their own backend systems and machine learning are not amplifying the worst content. We know that they are black boxes, so opaque that their transparency efforts are really the most meager steps towards some kind of lip service. And so we look at what is now the days ahead, both tomorrow, the midterms, and then the kind of rhetoric that we know will follow in the days after tomorrow. We know that we are going to see hate, conspiracy, lies continue to proliferate. And yet these companies, every election cycle, kind of string together their election integrity efforts, saying that they are doing enough. And yet we often then find evidence later that not only did they not commit to doing certain things, but that even their promises have been hollow. That's really why we've been trying to pursue a much wider type of initiative, building across sectors, whether that is with our advertiser partners, with other human rights leaders and activists, building what is a large movement here. I want to go to that issue of the advertisers. Rashad Robinson, uh, Musk tweeted, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation and we did everything we could to appease the activists, he said extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, can you respond? Well, Musk has actually met with some of the advertisers, met with uh, coalitions that represent the advertisers. I've had a number of conversations over the last couple of weeks um, with advertisers, with um, um, ad agencies as well. And Musk has not done himself any any services. Um, these companies are looking at where they want to put their brands. Um, they are looking at the stability of um, Elon Musk and of the company. Um, they were um, given some of the same promises we as activists were, were given um, around content moderation, around the election cycle, about making sure their ads are not placed up against um, white nationalists or disinformation. And Musk has not made good on the promises he's made to them. And so while we've been pressuring and pushing, I've never had such an experience. And I've run a lot of these campaigns where advertisers are very clear that they're not getting what they need and we don't have to do the type of pushing. I will say, just to pick up of what Nora, Nora was saying, is self-regulated companies are unregulated companies. And while we are doing this advertiser campaign, while we are pushing from the outside, um, the technology that has so much potential to move us into the future is dragging us into the past. And that is not unfortunate like a car accident. That is unjust. And it's manufactured through a whole set of choices that our government has made about how companies are regulated. Make no mistake. 
Our cars are not safe because of the benevolence of the auto industry. They are safe because of the infrastructure and accountability that surrounds it, because there are people that evaluate and hold accountable. And right now, whether it's the sort of algorithms that are not transparent, whether it's the business models decisions, whether it's these companies getting to decide what um, the standard is in terms of moderation, in terms of accountability, whether it's the fact that um, we have because 10 of laws that exist, they have a level of, of, of immunity to liability. We need a new set of engagement from Congress and the White House because we can't keep going to billionaires begging them to protect our civil rights. Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, Nora Benavides with Free Press. We thank you both for being with us. A happy belated birthday to John Hamilton. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.